All right, if you're going to try to find a spot in your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 6, at least to start this next session. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we'll be looking at that in just a moment. So once you have found that, just keep that there. Uh, We'll be getting there in just a sec. In this third session, I'm going to try to tackle uh, a huge issue in our culture, uh, particularly with regards to the woman's role as relates to the family, right? Max just talked about men's role as it relates to the family. I'm going to be talking about the minimization of motherhood that is prevalent in our culture. And that's obviously the primary way culture has uh, diminished, I think, the woman's role within the family. So uh, I'll try to unpack as much of that as I can and then use scripture to kind of reframe or help us to understand better uh, what is an appropriate way or lens to look at uh, motherhood. So uh, the first thing I think is important to understand is there's no, there's no way to overstate the impact that motherlessness has had in our culture. And by that, I don't mean women not in the home. What I mean by that is women who aren't focused on cultivating the home. So there's a difference between having a job outside of the home and still being able to cultivate children uh, or just not just like passing your children off for someone else to cultivate, like such such as like public school and kind of surrender all discipleship and everything to uh, a church camp or a youth group or something like that and not really care for that in the household itself. I don't think it's I don't think it's possible to overstate how how significant Christian culture has been impacted because of that. Uh, In the first session, I think I tried to outline as much as I could in the time that I had. Uh, how Eve's punishment as a result of the fall is, is unique to her task that she has been given. Right? She is a helper created for Adam, and the punishment that God hands down to her is unique to her labor in the Great Commission or her labor within the cultural mandate, which is to say she is to rear godly offspring. This is like the primary thrust of her, her charge. And this is something that I think if you were to go to the evangelical church today and sample 50 women from the church— most of them wouldn't get that clean and sound if you were to try to ask them about it. The problem is because in our culture, we're so egalitarian in the broader and Western culture that even within the church, the, the most conservative untaught church member will be roughly egalitarian in how they approach gender roles in the home. Uh, we believe things like uh, men and women are basically interchangeable. And so that means men can go out into the culture and work and women can go out just as equally. And the only difference will be something like who makes more money, and that kind of breaks the tie either way. Men can stay home equally with children. It doesn't really make much of a difference who does what job. But I think that scripture paints a different picture about where the, the task and responsibility ought to, ought to lie. I think the main way for the church to lose the culture war, and by that I don't mean that the church is primarily engaged in the culture war, but I mean that the way the church loses the culture, loses society, and even loses its own culture, is by, is by simply not having anyone to hand the baton to when you're done with your generation. You can consider the people of Israel when they are going from the, from the time of Joshua, right? That whole book of success and conquering in the promised land to the time of judges, right? What happens? The next generation comes up and there's no one who's going to be a faithful leader in the land. Now that dropping of the baton causes almost 300 years of darkness in, in Israel's history. Same thing happens with David. He passed the baton to Solomon and one of Solomon's children who comes up after him essentially divides the kingdom in half and Israel never looks back after that. They kind of just go straight downhill. That's the biggest way that the church can lose its own culture and engagement with the culture around it is by being, having one faithful generation. And when that generation passes away, there's no one left to, to tackle the next generation. This is why Eve's role in the dominion mandate is so critical. Her rearing up godly offspring is, is the backbone of what it's going to mean to be a successful Christian culture engaging with the world around us. 
So if you don't have anyone to hand the baton to, you're going to have a hard time doing things like what Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 commands us to do. And I'm going to read a whole section, but starting in chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So this is God commanding the people of Israel what they ought to do as a light of, in, in, in light of him being their God. Now, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with only their obedience. Notice what happens in verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when, you sit in your, when they sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Why? So not just you yourself can be obedient, but so that the children you raise would be obedient and your whole culture would be obedient. Now, Whose job is it primarily to raise up godly offspring? As we just introduced in Genesis, it's Eve's job to raise up godly offspring. It's, it's the woman's, let's say, dominion responsibility to raise up godly offspring. That doesn't mean that men have no role to play in the nurturing of children, but think about what the culture has done and getting away from godly offspring is it has convinced women that the work of motherhood, the work in the home, is not really work at all. So you should go get a real job and you can punt your kids out to whoever will take them go to a cheap daycare center, whatever, that's, that's good enough. But you should go work. That's, that's a better use of your time and we'll pay you for it. And I think that's a bad look at what it means to embrace the call of, of motherhood in this, in this broader sense. That's one way to lose a culture war, to have no children to pass the baton to at the end of a generation. So just essentially not having kids. The other way to, to lose that uh, is to pass the baton to an incompetent generation. So you have kids, plenty of kids, uh, but when you pass the baton to them to take up faithfulness, uh, no one's even faithful in that generation to take the baton, right? Uh, this, this transition is, is painful, but I think you could understand this. Uh, many of you guys have gone to Christian colleges or Christian universities. You'll be able to understand at least some of what I'm about to introduce, which is consider Iowa and Taylor just as two Christian colleges and imagine everyone who graduated from those two schools for the last 50 years and we had no apostates, no one who walked away from the faith from those two graduating schools. Think about the kind of impact culture would have had in 50 years time. The big problem that happens with Christian, Christian colleges trying to impact culture is of your graduating class, like 20% of them will remain faithful to Christianity and the rest will, will walk away, apostatize, go to some kind of nominal Christianity. They won't actually keep the faith in any kind of real sense of the word. So when they're engaging in culture, there's nothing really to, there's nothing really to show for it. There's no one who's competent, who's engaging in culture. Now, I, I introduced colleges who are responsible for training up the next generation, but that doesn't actually just start in the college, that starts in the home, with the raising of children, let's say from, from early age onward, okay? There's much more to say on this topic. Uh, I'll save some of that for a later session um, when we talk about male, male roles in the church. Um, but you'll see at least from these two things that one, the, the dominion call on Adam can only be completed if Adam has a faithful generation to pass the baton to. And the dominion mandate that passes the baton faithfully is entrusted to the women. They are the ones who are to raise up that next generation. And if you think about what would happen to our culture, if everyone who was raised in a Christian home stayed faithful to the Lord, loved the Lord, served him, and didn't walk away from the faith when they were in high school, Think about how many people we would have as faithful Christians in the culture. But that doesn't happen. People walk away from the faith. And that's not to say that, that's, that only women are to blame for that kind of thing. 
But I think a large part of that statistic can be owed to the fact that if you map those two timelines together, Christians apostatizing from the faith, let's say in high school and early college, and women primarily prioritizing their work responsibilities in a workforce outside of the home and not really caring much for the home, I think you'd see a pretty sharp correlation between those two things. Again, that's not to say that women can't work outside of the home at all. What that is to say is that their primary orientation and duty ought to be towards the cultivating of, of children. So that is, is at least a rough sketch between Genesis and this Deuteronomy 6 text. Now, uh, there's a text that we're going to go to now that Tim will touch on a lot more later, but I just want to sketch it initially, which is Titus chapter 2. So this is in the New Testament, the pastoral epistles, kind of towards the end of the New Testament, uh, where we get a bunch of commands from Paul about what the church ought to look like. And you'll notice that in his command, motherhood, even within the church, the role of women is aimed primarily at children. So even within the church, the goal of other women discipling other women in the church is aimed at discipling children in the church. Okay, so I just want you to see that trickle down. This is Titus chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 15. I won't be reading all of it, uh, but just some of these verses. So Titus 2, uh, verse, uh, I'll start in verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to do what? To love their husbands and their children. To be self-controlled and pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be reviled. Women working at home in a way that is cultivating the household and submitting to their husbands and, and growing and nurturing this household unit is the, is the very thing that the enemy despises, and it's the very thing women are called to. And the enemy is smarter than just to say, well, do this because what you're doing over here is good, but over here is also an even trade. The enemy is smarter than that. He will convince you more likely what has happened in the Western culture, that working at home is actually not worth the investment at all. That there's other things that are more valuable for your time. And so what would happen in that case is the word of God would be reviled. Notice the, the culmination of this command goes all the way down to uh, doing these things, and, and this is at the end of verse 5, so that the word of God may not be reviled. So the whole conduct of that, true, but let's say with the thrust of what I'm focusing on, women raising children in the home, loving their husbands, submitting to them well, that whole thing would cause the word of God not to be reviled. Now, if you think about how our Christian church engages in our Western culture, we try to not let the word of God be reviled by minimizing teaching like this and trying to say, no, we're just like you in terms of how we value men and women and we think they're interchangeable. But Titus says that, the word of God will not be reviled by actually embracing this creation order between men and women. So this is something just as a, a brief sketch, Tim will touch much more uh, on that text. But uh, I want to read a quote from Elizabeth Elliot that's a reflection on, on this text. And I think it's in your notes. It says this, It is doubtful that by teaching, the Apostle Paul had in mind Bible classes or seminars or books when he spoke of teaching younger women. He meant the simple things, the everyday example, the willingness to take time from one's own concerns, to pray for the anxious mother, to walk with her in the way of the cross with its tremendous demands of patience, selflessness, loving kindness, and to show her in the ordinaries of Monday through Saturday how to keep a quiet heart. So Elizabeth Elliot is talking about a number of texts that kind of are all reflecting on, on this truth. But the, her point is older women training younger women is not primarily done in, in preaching or teaching or seminars or books. It's primarily done in this kind of life-on-life -life relationship. And the goal and the culmination of that will be godly children. That's kind of the thrust of where 
that work goes. The goal of that all is that our culture will, not, will, will want what we have. The goal of that is that our culture will want what we have. The Christian church, I think, needs to do a much better job of showing why what we have is beautiful and lovely and that the culture would envy what we have. So the culture has no idea what it wants. We all know this. Uh, just look at the culture from 20 years ago to today. You'll notice they change their mind all the time. They don't know what they want. God knows what they want. God knows what is beautiful and lovely. He's created it. And I think we would paint a beautiful picture of what the culture desires in such a way that it causes them to desire things and see them as beautiful, even if they can't say, but I want that to be true. They would say, I hope it's true. I hope that that is a beautiful way to live life. But I don't think the church has done a good job of modeling that. And so it doesn't do us a lot of good if we haven't modeled it for us to turn to the culture and say, you must embrace this because the church isn't really embracing it. So I think we have to start, let's say, with the church itself first and paint a beautiful picture, let's say, for a couple of decades before we can turn to the culture and say, now you must embrace this teaching as well. To, to give a, an illustration uh, of what this kind of, this kind of impact would have, uh, if you remember the, the day of the Puritans, the Puritans are kind of like a famous era in, in the church history. They're known for their, these long sermons and robust doctrinal statements and, and beautiful books that you can still buy and are being reprinted. They're kind of like, some would say, like the golden age of the Reformation uh, in, in the UK and, and in the Western church. During that time, the average Puritan woman would have trained her children up in such a knowledge of scripture that the membership requirements for the average Puritan church would be more than most seminary students could handle when they graduate. And that wasn't seminary professors training these children. That was just women in the household training these children, the Bible, the knowledge of God's word in such a way that if you were to take a seminary student today who graduates from any seminary, drop them back in the Puritan era and say, you have to become a member of a church, they would struggle to do so. But the average Puritan kid could do so because they had been trained by their moms what to do and what to teach. They knew sound doctrine because of that. And so it's no surprise that in that fertile environment, you have some of the best teachers of the church coming out of that. But I think you've, you missed the mark by looking at where they've ended up and you should see, well, what produced that kind of a child? What produced that kind of a reformer? And it's, it's the mom. It's the cultivation in the home that produces that kind of thing. Imagine uh, if, if you had Calvins and Luthers and all these people, and then you just had them having children and having more of them, right? One Calvin and one Luther was plenty for the, for the Roman Catholic Church to deal with. <laughs> Imagine if you had a whole armada of them, right? That's kind of the impact that Eve can have on the cultural mandate. That's kind of the impact women can have on the cultural mandate. And I think it's the very thing that the enemy knows will be of impact. So it has deprioritized those kinds of things. Uh, with that, uh, there's, there's one more piece that I want to hit on. And I don't know how I'm doing on time, but I'll try to hit this briefly. Um, you don't need to turn there necessarily, but I've, I've left the reference there uh, in, the, in the notes for you. This is out of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Uh, and there's a whole series of things uh, that is, is stated in those texts. But the ones I would like to, to highlight is that even aside from the bearing of children, just the relationship that a wife has to her husband will paint a beautiful picture of what it means to embrace this beauty of creation within the church. So even pre-children, this kind of thing can be embraced by, by a Christian marriage. Uh, Peter says, and I'll just read it for you, wives are to be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they would be one even without a word by the conduct of their wives. A woman can, by her own conduct, preach the gospel effectively to her husband and, and almost win him over to the faith. When they see respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, which is with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, 
in which God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. The point of, of these texts is he's going to go on to say, husbands, how you ought to live towards your wives. But I'm emphasizing the, the female aspect of this because this is, this is part of creation's goodness. That a woman living in light of creation, in light of God's call, uh, paints a picture to even her unbelieving husband in such a way that it's hard for him to deny the beauty and the truth of that kind of thing. Now imagine if you had hundreds of Christian women doing that kind of thing, what the culture would see. The idea of, of this is, is a woman who lives in radically different, uh, w- listening to radically different voices. Uh, that would stand out drastically from our culture's typical idea of what a successful, strong woman looks like. And I think, but I think our culture has a bad definition of what a successful and strong woman looks like. Uh, just to highlight one of those pieces, the submission to uh, the husband. Uh, this is count- so countercultural uh, because, because women, we recognize this in our own culture, women have the ability to wield power, but not in the same way men, men wield power. Women are, are much more, uh, let's say, intelligent, crafty. Uh, they, they can wield power in a way that men can't. When men wield power, it's typically overt statements and, let's say, power grabs that are direct and, and straight to the point. You can think about someone like Genghis Khan, right? He, when he wields power, he's got to bring an army in and, and by brute force assert his will. But women, especially in our culture, wield a kind of power today that is strong and that could be used in a subversive way against their Christian husband. Um, but instead, what a Christian woman ought to do is take all of that power and pour it into the supporting and growing and, and investing in her husband and then the rearing of her children. And that power invested, I think, rightly as all the same skills that she would need that, that she could actually use to tear down her husband uh, in the culture. And the culture would see all of that, see that investment, see that beauty, and, and I think would be very envious of it. And the reason I'm saying that is because it's part of God's good creation that those things exist. And so when we live in light of God's good creation, the world has no choice but to recognize it as good, even if they don't, even if they don't like that's good. So uh, godly women uh, ought to have a vision of what it looks like for them to, let's say, live in light of their creation roles and responsibilities. Um, and, and honestly, a godly woman ought to have a vision of what a godly man looks like. Because part of the problem with the idea of submission in our culture is, is who are you submitting to? And, and why would you submit to, let's say, an incompetent person? Uh, submitting to Adam when he's giving you over to the serpent is not an attractive uh, ordeal. Uh, but submitting to Christ when he's willing to lay down his life for you is. If a man, a husband, uh, is discerned well by, her wife, by his wife, uh, if the wife, let's say, chooses carefully who she marries, only a man who's godly, who's worth submitting to, who's going to love her in the way that Christ loves her, then that submission isn't bondage, it's actually freedom. It's the most free that you'll ever be. We know this because submitting to Christ in our culture actually frees us from all of the shackles of what culture commands of us, and we only ought to obey Christ. So it is with a woman who uh, so either submits to a godly husband or doesn't. If a woman chooses not to submit to her husband, uh, and, she, and she instead rebels and wants to listen to other voices, well, she sh- she'll be submitting to someone. She'll be submitting to a feminist who's, who's writing articles and PhD work, She'll be submitting to the broader trends of the Western culture, or she could submit to a godly husband who will love her and care for her and respect her and cherish her. Um, all of that to say, uh, let's say, as I'm kind of closing all these things together, uh, we, we often think about the role of women so low, even in the, in the Christian church, 
that we think about the task of, of motherhood and being a wife as tasks that can almost be done unconsciously without much effort. Thus we say, well, you can go get another job and being a mom is not some kind of full-time investment or effort. And, I, and uh, so questions often get asked. I think uh, Connor was the one who asked it earlier. Well, what about a situation where, where people have, let's say, two different incomes, two different kinds of money? Uh, the one who makes more money, shouldn't they stay in the workforce and the other one stays home? Well, if you're looking from a purely economic standpoint, let's say just, just pluses and minuses on a spreadsheet, that could be an argument, but you're not factoring in, I think in that whole equation, children and the value that children add to the equation of, of life within the world. Uh, that is something that is invaluable, impossible to calculate. And uh, maybe one way we often think about this is, well, are you saying that a woman can't go out into the workforce and work and do what a man could do? And I think it's, it's maybe more appropriate to say, well, we certainly know that Adam can't come home and raise children the way that Eve could. Eve is the one who's uniquely gifted with that role. And so to hand children off to her husband and to leave the house and to go work and to essentially leave him home with them, uh, that, would be, that would be a slight on the children because uh, you might say, well, I'm not convinced that Eve couldn't do the things Adam could do out in the workforce, but maybe I could convince you that Adam could certainly not do the things that Eve is tasked with and gifted with within the home. Uh, even something so simple and biological as something like breastfeeding. We think about that and we totally skip over that. But I cannot replace my wife in terms of that need for my son. I can't do it. No matter what culture says, there's no way to substitute that. And there's a million ways beyond that that she can meet the needs of Calvin for the next eight or nine years that I will just never be able to. That's because she's been gifted by God to do that and I have not. And we would be wise and right and just in living in light of those creation realities. Uh, so with that, let me just close in a quick word of prayer, and then we'll go to some questions. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. Um, we know that this uh, is so difficult uh, in comparison with our culture and, and the dominant voices that are within it. Lord, we just ask for wisdom, uh, discernment, and care. Uh, that you would guard uh, my words and, and, and my statements uh, to only be in light of your truth. Uh, and you would help us all to sift carefully what has been said and the scriptures that have been presented uh, and only be obedient to your word so far as it speaks. Well, we ask and pray this in your name. Amen.